Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Clark. For the last decade, I've had the privilege of learning from impactful leaders across the globe through my service in the Peace Corps and nonprofits. Their leadership has inspired me to highlight those among us who are truly impacting our world so that we may learn from them and be more impactful together. Yes, leadership can be learned. The guests on our show are providing direction, inspiration, and leading the way in their business and community through service. Are you ready to have an impact? Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. Thank you, Michael, for being here this morning. For those listening, Michael Crawford recently wrote a book, From the Mouse House to the Penthouse. He worked with the Four Seasons Hotels uh, series with Walt Disney, and now he's on with the Hall of Fame. Um, Michael, thank you for being here, and thank you for uh, being gracious with your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so how did you, can you give a little background quickly about your career journey and how you got into Walt Disney and also the Four Seasons, because they're kind of two different monsters, (laughs) like huge corporations there. Yeah, different, different, but similar in the in the you know sort of service industry. I um, I had absolutely no idea coming out of undergrad uh, what I was going to do. So I was going back for my MBA uh, right after, and I had a good friend who was my big brother in my fraternity who said, "Hey, come on down, work for the summer at Disney. We'll have a great time." Uh, I went down, slept on his couch for a couple of months, and as I was getting ready to leave. Disney was, it was booming and they were building Disneyland Paris and uh, a lot in Walt Disney World. So I was working in Florida and they just stopped me literally on the way out the door and said, hey, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but um, we're growing and we could use great people and we'd love to put you into our management program. And so I I made a decision that wasn't very popular with my family. Uh, you said you were from the the Northeast as well, and and thinking about coming back to brutal, brutally cold winters versus Orlando, Florida. I said, "Hey, why not? I'll stay." Yeah. Uh, almost 25 years later, I had had a career where I was started off selling tickets and running ballet, and then you know negotiating probably the biggest deal that Disney ever did overseas at uh, for the Shanghai Disney Resort. How, so, what was the progress from selling those tickets up to the Shanghai movement? <laughs> We don't have the time for that, trust me. But I'll say this: <laughs> I uh, I really valued how Disney uh, progressed and grew talent. It, it is a culture that uh, prides itself from promoting uh, from within. And yeah. I was I was a person that went from a frontline they call them cast members, not employees, because it's a show and you're a cast member in the show. Uh, from from a frontline cast member to an assistant manager to a manager, and, and really. Um, I had seven jobs in my first five years working for them. And, and yeah. I think the great thing about working for them was they uh, they did a really good job at, at understanding talent and what talent they needed to have in certain positions mm-hmm. and talent. And so they gave me a lot of different opportunities in theme parks and hotels and retail dining and entertainment. And then somehow when I was working at a, a place called Downtown Disney, um, they needed an operational person to sit in as a part of a deal team to give them sort of perspective, right? The deal teams didn't have operational experience and we were changing out Disney owned and operated assets to what we called third party owned and operated assets, Mm -hmm. Wolfgang Puck and Cirque du Soleil and House of Blues. 
And so they wanted somebody who had uh, been there and operated the, the property uh, to say, yeah, this is how we need to negotiate deal terms so that you could create an integrated experience. From there, I opened another downtown Disney. I went to Tokyo and became the managing director of operations for Tokyo Disney Resort. And again, it was very odd, but I was on my way back. I spent three and a half years in Tokyo and I was coming back to run the studios down in Florida. I'd still had a home there and I was stopped by uh, in Las Vegas. No kidding. Yeah. I was stopped in Las Vegas. I was doing a deal with Cirque du Soleil to have a permanent Cirque show in Tokyo. And a guy who was starting uh, a brand new division for the company, Global Business Development, said, hey, you got ops experience, you got deal experience, you got culture experience, international experience. Why don't you come and do this job? And I did and, and you know, had a chance to do multiple deals for the company and uh, was quite fortunate. And then with my operational experience, I was asked to stay and run Shanghai Disney Resort after doing that multi-billion dollar deal. And Never thought I was going to leave Disney. You know, I had really, uh, I was, re I love the company. It's a great company. Got a call from a search firm. Hey, Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, another big brand looking for a president. Uh, I started as president of Asia Pacific and then wound up yeah. being president of the company. And so I I've been lucky timing and uh, willingness to just get in and do whatever I was asked to do really, I think, helped me grow my career in ways that I could have never imagined those are the two things you always have to be open to put yourself in those weird uncomfortable situations and then timing is always a play in it and then what I was when i got the call to go to tokyo oh you can't turn that down <laughs> yeah at that time <laughs> in my life i was like wow i just had a young daughter and i thought what an incredible experience and she i mean the the gift to her was she grew up more than half of her life in middle school and then graduating high school in Tokyo, Shanghai, Singapore. So she speaks and writes Mandarin fluently and, and writes it fluently. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty phenomenal thing for a kid uh, with a yes. parent who grew up in a town that was 7,000 people strong. Yeah, that is a, a huge gift for her. And then what kind of, what was the impetus for you deciding to write the book from the house's mouth to the penthouse? I mean, we were kind of talking off about like culture and you just delved into it a little bit but what made you decide to write it you know for for multiple years i had had people that were close to me saying you know the experiences you've had uh are so interesting and different versus what most americans ever get to have and mm -hmm. from a business perspective you know we sometimes overlook the fact that simple lessons can be very meaningful in success and so, uh, you know, I just kept having that sort of recurring narrative come back to me. And I thought, you know, I had to spend a lot of time away from my daughter when she was younger, doing deals and traveling the globe mm -hmm. and uh, working for these companies. And so I thought the combination of honoring her uh, by writing this book and then also providing those types of lessons to others that may really benefit from it, why not? And, uh, and so, <laughs> I, you know, I started doing this and I, I never imagined how hard writing a book could actually be, but uh, it's, it was a lot of fun. And then what were some of the biggest cultural takeaways from operating companies, you know, in that Asia Pacific area? Well, you know, I talk about culture, certainly from Asia, but culture exists everywhere. There okay. are multiple different types of culture right here in the United States. You go to New York, to California, to Alabama, to, you know, wherever you go, you're always going to to feel culture in different ways. You'll feel mm -hmm. it sometimes in food. You'll feel it sometimes in 
in etiquettes, language, you know, certainly. Yeah. But the, the biggest takeaway for me in doing business in Asia was you're dealing with a culture that was centuries older than the United States. Mm -hmm. So very deeply rooted in who they were as uh, people from China, Chinese people or people from Japan, Japanese people. The other big takeaway was the way the West and specifically the United States is viewed by uh, other countries, you know? Yeah we can have a great reputation or we can have a not so great reputation. And so when I was in China specifically, you know, I remember the wall street journal came out with this article saying, here comes Disney, the aircraft carrier for Western culture doing a deal in mainland China. And, you know, I mean, the, the other side of the table, the, the government that, that we were working with uh, that, that really stopped them for a few moments because they were very protective over us not coming in and trying to change who they were as a culture and impose mm -hmm. a Western will. So, you know, you, you have to kind of understand that culture exists everywhere, number one. Number two, culture exists from a national point of view, and then it exists from a business point of view. So Disney had its own culture, right? And <laughs> yeah. Western culture. So I was marrying four different types of culture to get a deal done and to have a, a long-standing partnership. That was probably the biggest lesson I took away from there. And then how do you manage that even? Like, how do you, because those are some difficult things, like depending everyone has their own scale of if it culture is really important to them, if it's not, and then how do you manage like all, so much goes into it. It's such a complex thing. Like I don't need, yeah, yeah. I, like I, yeah. It's, it's, you know, look, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, overtly communicating and being transparent and not trying to manipulate one side or the other, right? And it was just as important for me to do that same thing with Disney or a Four Seasons so that all those people sitting back in Burbank, California or <laughs> Toronto, Canada, yeah. you know, what's that guy doing over there? You know, is he is he changing what we do as a company that's made us successful to be in mainland China? So you have to really communicate the what are the table stakes, you know, that that everybody has to understand to be able to be successful in a different part of the world with different cultural nuances that you have to respect. I mean, the, the big thing that I always did was I sought out other senior executive opinions from different companies that were already there mm -hmm. and already successful. Coke and Goodyear and GM and, you know, all, GE and all these other companies I became fast friends with these uh, different CEOs because they could teach me things and I could skip lessons of having to learn things <laughs> the hard way. Um, and if I was willing to listen and, you know, one of the things that, that I always say to people is be humble, you know, don't be mm -hmm. arrogant when you're dealing cross-culturally, you, you have to be respectful. And I, and I was, and um, I, I understood that communication was going to be the key to understanding what were going to be the most important points for the Chinese, the most important points for Disney, and how to marry those things up. I love that. And then what were some of the other lessons that you learned from your time at Disney, the four seasons that have been the most helpful in you standing up and operating the Hall of Fame resort and entertainment company where you're at now? Well, the, the benefit of my doing uh, business development for Disney 
was you really were starting new things. You were expanding the brand yeah. in different ways. And what you what you quickly realized was while many in the company would say, hey, we want you to immediately start from where Walt Disney World is operating today, you knew that you couldn't get there. It took Walt Disney World, you know, 50 years to get there, right? And all the lessons and evolution and how guests would come and, and utilize the, the property and, and the perception of the experience, et cetera, you had to start from ground zero. Yes, you could benefit from those learnings, but you really had to go back to that startup mentality. Yeah. So that I think was a, a huge lesson for me in Japan and in China, building hotels around the world with four seasons. You, you quickly understood that you couldn't just be Disney day one. You had to teach people how to use the experiences, what the brand was about, what the characters were about, all of that, just as Walt did, you know, back in 1950, 1955. Mm -hmm. That benefits me here because I see things today and I say, gosh, I want to be here already. And I, I pull myself back and my team back. And, and it's just like building a home or a, a building of any kind. You have to build the foundation strong. You have to create the brand. You have to create awareness in the consumer's mind about who you are and what you do. And you have to, you have to find your niche, right, in, in how you're going to deliver experiences that are going to be unique and different for consumers and guests whether it's us creating great media like we've done or gaming environments or, or physical destinations, you know, a lot of that is the Disney formula. And uh, I, I've been fortunate to be around that for a long part of my career to see how that all interconnects and how the synergies can really drive, you know, the sum of the parts can be much greater as a whole. I love that. No, that, do you ever have difficulty because there they're all kind of in the same wheelhouse, but at the same time, I mean, the goals are going to be ever so slightly different. Or do you just, again, you go back and you refer to that Disney formula that you just talked about to move things forward. Like when you're jumping from one, one job to the other, which now is becoming a little bit more popular, especially at those higher levels. Yeah. It takes yeah. a little higher. It's a great question. I think the thing that, and, and look, uh, there's, there's been surveys done about this where, people who come from these big branded companies and have had success in those environments actually sometimes don't have success moving to other places. And for me, one of the, one of the great things I think that I had uh, the ability to do was go from a big company, you know, where I was based in Burbank, California at the corporate mm -hmm. headquarters where resources were virtually unlimited in some cases um, to a startup environment in China or Japan, where I had to really think about how I was going to run the entirety of the business, the entire PL. And then moving to Four Seasons, it's a smaller company, right? And so, still with a lot of resources, but not quite as big, not anywhere close as big <laughs> as the Walt Disney Company. Yeah. So, I've sort of scaled back how I think about the business. And I really mean it, you know, for, for the job I'm in today. I count pennies, not dollars, right? And I, I'm focused on the smallest of decisions, not decisions that are 50,000 feet high because yeah. you realize that those small decisions, the, the dozens of those you make in a day are really what build the company in that and, startup mentality. And then how do you, I, I love that you're talking about that startup mentality so often, like you have all those footballs behind you in the helmets. We can go back to sports when you have, 
like all these coaches in the NBA right now are getting fired because they're going from one place to the other. But how do you know when all those little steps, if it's too tedious, if it's too minuscule, how do you balance that and come to the decision where this is that small decision, that penny that I should count and then others are not? Because with someone of your role, too many pennies, like that's gonna, it weighs a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. I think, you know, what I've been fortunate enough to do is put a great team in place. Yep. has expertise in what they've done. And so I've I've got people who have worked for sports franchises. I've got people who have worked very successfully in community environment where we, we are here. I've got people who have run media divisions for other bigger companies. And what I've what I've tried to teach them and develop them uh, is that there are times where 80% is good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to get everything to a hundred percent perfect. And, uh, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? That, that yeah. thing. And, and so you just get, after a while, you understand, this is a bad analogy, but I was using it with somebody the other day, you know, I sort of view myself as a clown in the circus, right? And my job is, when I'm juggling all the balls, I got to know which one to touch at what time to keep them all in the air. And so mm -hmm. you get good at multitasking, but you also get good at assessing is this something I need to be involved with, or is this something that one of yeah. my very capable team has and, and they got it and you trust that, that they're going to be able to make the right call. And then you're, you're sort of the orchestrator, you're the conductor, right? And that's, that's kind of where, but you can't do that from day one. You have to build to that place. Yeah. You have to start with that one ball juggling and then you just have to practice being able to catch it. And then you move on to three, four or five. Um, you also mentioned how difficult it was writing a book. Do you think you're going to write another one? Do you have other ideas down the line if you're going to do another? I've, I've had, again, it's, it's funny. Once you do something, I think the expectation becomes, well, if that's, and I guess the book is doing well, I mean, from what I'm hearing, uh, and I'm appreciative of that. I, once you've had some success, then the expectation is, well, gosh, if you have something to offer, in in sort of that genre you know mm -hmm. want to do something else uh it's a little too early for me to think about that right now i'm not a professional author i'll be the first one to admit to that but it was a lot of fun you know i spent hundreds of hours and that's not an exaggeration by the way just uh you know putting thoughts down in my my lovely little iphone device uh recording and and i've got notebooks full of notes that I'd wake up in the middle of the night and say, you know, that's an interesting thought. I'll put that down. Uh, it was hard editing it all together. And sure. I think you can't perfectly candid. I hired support for that because what I know is you can get too close to the subject matter mm -hmm. in perspective, especially if it's sort of a business. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I had a great guy who worked with me and he would say, I know this makes sense to you but it doesn't to me and yeah. we figure out how we can tell this story so that when people read it, they go, Oh yeah, I get that. I get what yeah. he's talking about there. I love that you worked with someone that didn't understand necessarily. So they were able to be like, if you can teach me, the average reader is going to pick it up too. Cause there's that quote with Abe Lincoln where he talks about, he could have written a shorter letter if he had more time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard trying to edit. Do I need this word? Do I need that? Trying to get those. That's why I think Twitter is one of like, one of the best ways to really hone in on your on like your copy writing in general, writing in general, because you have however many characters, you're trying to talk about a big thing. 
you can really practice and hone that in on a daily basis and do it quickly. It's, I mean, it's the old, you know, elevator pitch, right? Yeah. What, yeah, yeah. You've got a minute to get your message out. What are you going to say? And that's, that's another thing I teach folks. Uh, I'm really specific around, you know, you may have an hour to do a presentation. That's great. But you might have two minutes in front of a board to give them the key critical messages they need to understand. And that's great as well. And you got to figure out how to scale up or scale down. And that's what he did. To, his name was Tim. And he, uh, he really helped me in some cases say, you, you're saying a whole bunch here. <laughs> and you lose the reader. Um, and I really appreciated that. And, and the feedback I've gotten has been, uh, and not just family and friends, by the way, a lot of folks <laughs> yeah, that's good, have, that's have said it's very re readable, very related, yeah. and, and an easier uh, read to understand. So that that's as an author, you know, or as somebody who's written a book, to me, that's probably the greatest compliment. The content is good. Mm -hmm. It helped me. And it's easy to, to digest and understand. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to pick up my copy. Um, when I was in college back in the early 2000s, one of the courses I took was like doing business in Asia specifically, because I knew I wanted to do international work, preferably with nonprofits. And it's just really eye-opening. And that's where that cultural map book that we were talking about um, before we started filming, where you have how people deal with tasks, how they deal with hierarchies, how do they deal with confrontation? And then you have the U.S. culture, you have, you know, what, depending if you're in Tokyo, Ch uh, Shanghai, wherever, all of those scales are all over the place. Like, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot to ba balance. And that's why I think these books are, are really valuable because the more we become a global, just a global connection, <laughs> it's, it's going to, like, it's so important. It's a very small world now. Companies, even small companies, are doing business in multiple geographies. And I think, you know, what you, what you always have to stop and, and realize is that we, we're sort of hardwired in the United <laughs> States to get to the point. What's the answer, you know? Yeah. And, and even I remember in Japan early days in Tokyo, what, what really resonated with me was the patience to listen and then respond versus I'm formulating my response before you ever even mm -hmm. stopped what you have to say. I'm I'm already I've stopped listening to you and I'm already thinking about my my response. And yeah. so that was, <laughs> you know, when you're a Westerner and you're doing business in Asia, it is very disrespectful to completely bypass what something has that somebody has already said to just make your point. And so mm -hmm. I, I had that lesson very early on and I would purposely, I, I had notebooks and I still have them all. Uh, you know, I would write down what the interpreter was saying, really consider it, almost repeat it back so that the person who said it got that I heard them yeah. and say, so here are my thoughts now based on that. Uh, and I think that worked well for me because too many times you walk into a room and you're negotiating a deal and a Western will say, okay, here's where I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do this, 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 and this. And someone from Japan says, hold on a minute. <laughs> I, I, I need to think about this. I need to, I'll consider that. I need to come back. I need to study this. I need to, they're, they're much more thoughtful when it comes yeah. to response and respectful. So that was a big lesson for me. Yeah. And it's just, 
one of the best experiences I had when I was working in the Amazon, one of the volunteers was from Germany. I was in the Peruvian Amazon, so we had Peruvians that we were dealing with. We had someone from Italy and someone from Finland. So when it came to the conversational piece, especially with feedback, mm. it was all over. Like people think the US are very like blunt. It was like the Peruvians were here on not being blunt. Then you had the US, the German, and then the person from Finland. Right. And it happened in this scale where it's like she thought we were all being like wishy-washy. And it's just it's once that happens more and you start getting that mix and you have to untangle it and kind of know, okay, this person is coming from this. Don't take it harsh. That's right. From the Peruvian, maybe, maybe you're really pushing some buttons there if it's coming from the other side. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. But, um, well, one of the things I talk a lot about in the book, and I said it earlier, was I really, you know, and I learned this, I worked in my father's manufacturing plant uh, okay. summers when I was going to school. And I would listen to people tell their stories and I'd keep mm -hmm. my mouth shut and I'd just listen, right? And one of the things that uh, I think I did, and it's one of the lessons in the book is, you're not in this alone. You're gonna find a whole bunch of resources living abroad that you, if you take the time and you really go out, and again, you're humble and you say, hey, look, I'm, I'm hearing this, or this is what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. You're gonna get some really great advice because I found that the expatriate communities, they have this sense of being in it together, right? And everybody wants everybody to be successful, even if you may be working for a rival company. And I, I would tell you, I, I, I'll never forget, I met with uh, the head of uh, a, a pretty big bank in, um, in China. And I walked into her office and she said, so how long have you been over here? And I said, oh, about a year. And she said, I bet you're going through this, this, and this. And I, you know, I sort of stopped for a moment and I said, do you have kids <laughs> in my office and in my house? And she said, no, it's pretty true to form. And these, so this is what I did. And gosh, it was invaluable. Those little nuggets of, of mining those nuggets of information saves you so much time, so much, yeah. time, if you will, yeah. uh, to get more culturally indoctrinated. Yeah. And Peace Corps, they have the same thing where depending on where you are in your journey of that 27 months, this is where you're gonna experience the honeymoon phase. Here's the depression and loneliness. Here's the part where you're feeling happy, but also sad because you know you only have a year left. Here, you're really starting to catch your strides, you're connected, you're getting things done. And then, you know, it's like a roller coaster and it's, it is. it's one of those things. But um, Michael, thank you so much for your time this afternoon, uh, this morning. Um, you're really gracious with your time and I loved all of the little nuggets that you just dropped there and if for all those that are listening make sure you pick up and I'll drop a link in the, in the comment section below but is there anything else you want to promote or mention before we go Michael? No I, th I think the fun thing was you know writing the book and and having my daughter participate so if you if you buy the audio version of the book which isn't out yet but it will be in another week I believe she's actually the voice so I remember my publisher saying, hey, we've got a list of folks that you know, yeah. we recommend. And I said, no, no, I already know the person I want to be uh, the audio version of my book. And so my they flew my daughter to Austin, Texas. She spent three days there in a studio and she loved it. And she's an avid reader and, and is a really smart kid. And, and so she's the voice. So it was pretty special being able to do that with her. And uh, 
It's it's gotten a lot of good feedback. I hope it really helps folks. I, I do think it lives in different places, business schools, yeah. you know, businesses, wherever. But it's also got some fun stories and pictures in there too that I think are entertaining. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks. it.